And you can keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 24. You've just joined us. We've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. And in the last few weeks, we have been looking at how David had been on a run from King, Dave, King Saul, who is jealous of him and wants him dead. And in our passage last week in chapter 23, we learned that David moved to the wilderness of Ziph. And when the men of Ziph betrayed him to Saul, he moved to the wilderness of Maon. And at Maon, Saul again pursued David. And David narrowly evaded Saul this time, only because as Saul was closing in to capture David, he got news that the Philistines had made a raid against the land. And Saul had to give up the chase to deal with the Philistines. And chapter 23 ends with, David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Enter chapter 24. And the opening verse of our passage this morning reads, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul's back. And David's again on the run, a fugitive, hiding from Saul in the wilderness. This time, the wilderness of En Gedi. As you can tell by now, David spent quite a fair bit of time in the wilderness. The wilderness of Ziph, and the wilderness of Maon, and now the wilderness of En Gedi. Won't be the last day in wilderness, because in the next chapter we'll find him in the wilderness of Paran. Wilderness, not the sort of place you necessarily want to spend a lot of time. They're often harsh and inhospitable. And many of the wilderness in Israel are really deserts. David didn't choose to be there. He was chased there. But the wilderness experience turned out to be significant times for David. Much like the two other famous wilderness stories that we know in the Bible, if you remember your Old Testament, you'll know that Moses spent 40 years in the Sinai wilderness with the Israelites. They were tested and tempted. And what did they learn? Well, they didn't do too well there, did they? They learned to complain and, and God banned that whole generation from entering the Promised Land. Jesus spent 40 days in the Judean wilderness with the devil. He was tested and tempted. And he passed with flying colors and provides for us a, a model for how we should be facing our own temptations and our own testings. David, likewise, will be tested and tempted during his time in the wilderness. And our story in chapter 24 will tell us how he did. Will his experience be more like Moses or Jesus? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that Saul took 3,000 men with him to hunt down David. If you recall, in the last chapter, David had 600 men with him. And so Saul had the numerical advantage of about 5 to 1. Oh, that's a pretty good advantage. And remember, these are not just men, any men. They were chosen men out of all Israel. The best of the best fighting men in Israel. 3,000 men chosen by Saul, hunting down one man chosen by God. And as they were pursuing David in the wilderness, there was a cave and we are told Saul went in to relieve himself. He found, probably found a super spot in the cave, took off his robe, laid it on a rock, put down the spear, 
and then proceeded to do the necessary. Well, I won't go into details. I'll leave that to your fertile imagination. But just one small problem. They forgot to send the SWAT team in to clear the cave first. And so of all the caves that he could have chosen, Saul went into the one that David and his men were hiding inside. And I'll try to imagine the scene, right? Here is Saul doing his utmost best to find and kill David. Now in a cave alone with David and his men hiding inside. Totally outnumbered. Possibly 600 to 1. And worse still, it's probably hard to find Saul in a more, shall I say, vulnerable position. He's literally caught with his pants down, with his back to the enemy. And you don't need to be a soldier to tell that that's a pretty difficult position to defend yourself. <laughs> and then just a little further in, we have David with his men egging him on. You can imagine them telling David in harsh tones, barely concealing their excitement, their glee, rubbing their hands. Just do it. They tell him, God has promised to give your enemy into your hand and it shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. God's opened the door for you. What other sign do you need? Just do it. And so David crawls to where Saul was and, and what does he do? We're told in verse 5, and afterward, well, he cut off a corner of Saul's royal robe and afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. The NIV Bible has it as conscience-stricken. David was conscience-stricken. He felt guilty about cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. This is the Saul who wanted him killed. This is the Saul who's just massacred all the priests and all the families in Nob. Why? Because he couldn't find David there. What's happening here? Well, think of all the stories about robes in 1 Samuel. In chapter 15, uh, we see that Saul grabs hold of Samuel's robe. And when it tears, Samuel tells him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you to this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 18, Jonathan, Saul's son, gives his robe to David, signifying that he's giving his rights of his kingdom to David. And so David cutting off a corner of Saul's robe is intended to symbolically signify a transfer of power from the house of Saul to the house of David. The one, he's the neighbor of Saul whom Samuel spoke about, the one better than Saul to whom the kingdom would be given. And furthermore, with the corner of uh, his robe cut off, David has rendered Saul's robe to be now in a state of non-compliance with the requirements of Torah. You can read that in Numbers chapter 15. And so Saul's most obvious symbol of kingship is now formally unwearable. But Saul doesn't know this yet, right? And David immediately recognized the implication of what he did. And while he did not follow his man's suggestion to kill Saul, he has in effect, consciously or unconsciously, made a claim for the kingdom. And that's why his heart struck him. His conscience pricked him. He realized the kingdom was not his to grab. It was God's to give. And so he crawled back to his men and said to them, 
the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And he persuaded his men not to attack Saul. And in the meantime, Saul, after doing what he needed to do, walked out of the cave, blissfully unaware about how close he was to death. Now let's pause here and think about this for a moment. Think about what happened, what just happened. In a totally inexplicable way, David was somehow able to see this man Saul, who would stop at nothing to kill him. David could see this man through different lances from, lances from all his other men. David was able to see Saul not as his enemy, but as the Lord's anointed. How is this possible? And so our first question this morning is, how was David able to do what was right? How was David able to do what was right? You see, I think that wilderness has somehow trained and formed David. In Exodus, the wilderness experience led a whole generation of Israelites to sin against God, to complain against Him, to become ungrateful to Him. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 9 puts it this way, and you have it in your handout. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on a day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The Israelites' hearts were hardened and they rebelled against God in the wilderness. But in David's case, the wilderness experience didn't harden his heart. Instead, it helped him to see how he needed to depend not on himself, but on God, who is his ultimate refuge. And how do we know this? Because David told us. You see, in the narratives in, in 1 Samuel that we've had so far, we get a picture of David during the spirit from the outside, from a third party's perspective, the author of 1 Samuel. But in the Psalms, we get a picture of David during his time, this time in the wilderness, from the inside, from his own perspective. And there are two Psalms of David, which are about his time in the cave. Psalm 57, which you, we've just read uh, earlier this morning, and Psalm 142. And we know there are also two instances recorded for us in 1 Samuel of David being in a cave, fleeing from Saul. And both instances in the wilderness. One, which was the time when David was in a cave of Abdullam in chapter 22. And a second, which is our passage this morning. And as Derek Kittner, a commentator, writes in his commentary on the Psalms, together the two Psalms give us some idea of the fluctuating state of David's emotions in the ordeal. Psalm 57 is bold and animated, almost enjoying the situation for the certainty of its triumphant outcome. And in Psalm 142, the strain of being hated and hunted is almost too much and faith is at full stretch. Isn't that quite like us when we go through our own individual wildernesses? I don't know what wilderness you may be in right now. Maybe as the weather turns colder, the day grows shorter, you may be feeling a little bit more depressed than ever. 
or maybe it's a relationship with someone that's going wrong or an addiction you just can't seem to shake off or perhaps a difficult job search or maybe a difficult year in school whatever it is our moods fluctuate our emotions go on a roller coaster up one day down another pretty much like David but I want you to see the common theme in both Psalms and it's the word refuge you have this in your handout. In Psalm 57, verses 1 and 2, David writes, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. And then Psalm 142, verse 5, he writes, I cry to you, O Lord, I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. What is a refuge? For the authors in the Old Testament, a refuge is a place of safety from danger, relief from stress, defense from an enemy, protection from the heat of the sun, overall security. It's also not just a geographical term. In fact, more often than not, it's a spiritual term. David learned to take refuge in God in the difficult times in the wilderness. He did not rebel. His heart was not hardened. And instead, we are told the heart of David was, as Psalm 57 verse 7, we just read, puts it, steadfast. David's heart was steadfast. It was steady, loyal, and faithful. Because that's what the word steadfast means. Why? Why is that even possible? Because he made God his refuge. And because he could do that, it means that while Saul was the reason for David being in the wilderness, Saul neither defined nor dominated the wilderness. The wilderness was full of God, not Saul. And that's why he could see Saul as God's anointed one, not as an enemy. Now, isn't that the case for us as well today? Oftentimes, it is in our wilderness that God teaches us how to find our refuge in Him. Our wildernesses are our trading grounds. And my prayer for us is that we will learn not to let our wilderness be filled with despair, with self-pity, with hate, with an unforgiving spirit. Like David, let our hearts be steadfast. Let our wildernesses be filled with God. And I urge you this time, this week, take time to meditate on Psalm 57. It will be a great help, especially if you are going through your own wilderness. Verse 8, And afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And as Saul turned around, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Well, you can imagine the surprise on Saul's face. By his words and his posture, David made it clear that Saul was still the king in David's eyes. And then he makes his case to his king. David asked, why does the king believe those who tell Saul that David wanted to harm him? David's actions showed clearly that this is fake news. Otherwise, he would have listened to those who were with him in a cave and put a spear through the king. And then going one step further, he addressed, addressing Saul as father, David held up the corner of Saul's robe in his hand as proof that what he said was true. 
David made it clear that he was not guilty of sin or treason against Saul. And so Saul was, in fact, the guilty party hunting him down without justification. David would not let the Lord avenge him, would let the Lord avenge him against the evil that Saul was doing, but David would not himself touch Saul because he was the Lord's anointed. Well, that must have been quite a speech because Saul was evidently touched and calling David, my son. Well, technically David was his son-in-law. Saul said, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And Saul acknowledged, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. It's taken a while. But Saul now recognizes the inevitability of David's kingship over Israel. We had Samuel the prophet in chapter 16, and then Jonathan, his son, and now Saul. They've all now come to realize that it won't be Saul's family who will reign over Israel, but David's. And having acknowledged that, Saul seeks to ensure that David will not cut off his offspring after him. Something David was happy to promise because he had already made an earlier promise, similar promise to Jonathan. In our earlier section, I asked the first question, how was David able to do what was right? And in this second section, I want to ask the question, how was David able to know what was right? So that even his enemies saw acknowledged, you are more righteous than I. Think about it. David is in a cave. Saul, who wants him dead, is defenseless in the cave. And David's men are telling him, just do it. In fact, they make a very compelling case. Didn't God promise you? They asked him. Didn't God say, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And isn't this God's providence? Come on. What's the probability of Saul walking into the very cave that David and his men were in? There are thousands of these caves. And he has to walk into the very one we're in? God has clearly opened the door for you to become king, David. God's promise and God's providence. These are pretty compelling arguments. I can imagine the pressure David was under from his men. And by the way, who are these men? Remember two weeks ago in chapter 22? We were told that these men were those in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented. And I'm sure King Saul was not their favorite personality. And that's why they are with David to begin with. And I have no doubt that they would rather see Saul dead than alive. Now, how was David able to know what was the right thing to do in, under such circumstances? Well, I don't know about God's promise that David's men were referring to. We don't have any record of it in the Bible. But God's providence is a different thing. It is clear that Saul coming to the cave was providential. No doubt about that. Because David himself said so in verse 10. When he told Saul, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. But providential in what way? For David's men 
Saul walking into the cave was providential because they believed that God arranged for Saul to walk, fall into David's hand so that David could kill him and take over the throne. After all, isn't David the anointed one as well? But for David, Saul coming into the cave was providential because it allowed David the opportunity to prove to Saul that he had no desire to harm Saul, even when he could easily have done so. And as such, there was nothing for Saul to fear, and he didn't need to continue pursuing him. You see the point I'm trying to make? An open door can sometimes be God's open door, or it could just be the devil tempting you. Providential is a matter of perspective. One thing for sure, our desires and our circumstances are not good guides to the will of God. This is not to say that God can never use them, and He does, but both can be deceptive. I always wanted to buy this Samsung 75-inch 4K HDR LED Smart TV. Well, two days ago was Black Friday, and guess what? The price was discounted 40%. And what did I find in my post box on Thursday? My new credit card. How providential. <laughs> well, I know he's not where he should be spiritually, but he's just joined my department and he happens to go to the same gym that I go to as well. Now, isn't that something? It can't be a coincidence. God must have arranged it. How providential. You see, our, our circumstances can often be just a justification for our desire. By the way, I'm not interested in Samsung 75-inch TV in case you're wondering. Okay. Because I want this, I will find a way to make it seem right. A way to make it seem like God's opening the door to what I want. And even when a door remains shut, I'll start looking for open windows. Right? God may have promised David to be king, but how he becomes the king was another matter. God's promise must be achieved God's way. And God's will was not for the cold-blooded murder of a defenseless man who, despite all his flaws, was still the Lord's anointed. And David knew that. Yes, David's man's thinking seemed reasonable, but they were wrong. David would rather obey God's will where it's unmistakably clear he would not take a shortcut to achieving kingship. And... Wasn't that the same with our Lord Jesus Christ? Remember Jesus' temptation in the Judean wilderness? Where the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Matthew chapter 9, uh, chapter 4, sorry. Jesus knew that God had promised him all these kingdoms and their splendor. You see that in Psalm 2. So what the devil was offering Jesus was the will of God for Jesus' life. But it was not God's will that Jesus achieved kingship this way. Not by worshipping the devil, but through the humiliation of the cross. So what about us? How do we know what's the right thing to do in this 21st century? How do we know what is God's will for our lives? Let me just take a few moments to address this. 
It's often easier to decipher what the will of God might look like in ethical issues like, should I cheat in my exams coming up? Or should I pursue this office romance with my colleague even though she's married? Or should I try and evade payment on the TTC when I get on the train today? Well, I hope it's clear to all of you that the answer to all these questions are resounding no. Because if you are at all not sure, please see me after service. Okay? But what about the non-ethical issues? What is the will of God regarding which university I should go to? Or where should I live? Or which job should I take up? Whom should I marry? The Bible's not so clear-cut, is it? I don't have the time to go into details, but I'll just share a few thoughts. The will of God for us can be seen in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. Matthew 26, 20, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. You should read the whole passage on your own, but for the sake of time, I'll just read verses 31 to 33. And again, you have that in your handout. This is Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is making two points here regarding God's will for our lives. The first point is this, that God's will is that you do not need to be anxious. Do not worry. Because God knows better than you what you need, and he provides for you better than you can ever do for yourself. So, point number one, do not worry, do not be anxious. Point number two, God's will is for you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first what is important to God. You see, it's not that God's not interested in which university you go to or who you marry. He's interested in all that, very. In fact, he knows even the number of hair on my head. But as someone puts it, even more important than these decisions, God wants transformation. He wants us to know Him so intimately that His thoughts become our thoughts, His ways our ways, His affections our affections. God wants us to drink so deeply of the Scriptures that our heads and our hearts are transformed so that we love what He loves and hate what He hates. The decision to be in God's will is the daily decision that we face to seek God's kingdom or ours, to submit to His Lordship or not, to live according to His rules or our own. And so how do we know the kingdom and the righteousness of God? How do we know what's important to Him? What's His character like? Well, through the Word of God. And how does the Word of God guide us? Hear the words of John Newton, the composer of the hymn Amazing Grace. And this is what he writes. In general, God guides and directs His people by affording them, in answer to prayer, the light of His Holy Spirit, which enables them to understand and to love the Scriptures. The Word of God is to furnish us with just principles, right apprehensions to regulate our judgments and affections, and thereby to influence and direct our conduct. God's Word, illumined by the Holy Spirit, will provide a good guide. 
Our chapter ends with this sentence in verse 22. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul goes home, but David goes back to the wilderness. He doesn't go back to his home and to his wife. Because David doesn't trust the words and the tears of Saul. And it wouldn't be long before he'll be proven right. Not exactly the happy ending that we'll like. But life like that, isn't it? Most parts we can expect to be in the wilderness, battling with the world, with circumstances, with sickness and sin. I suspect the wilderness experience is a common one for many of us here. Let me conclude by reading an article from a pastor's newsletter. I get an update from time to time from his church in Montreal. They recently had a baptism and he writes, and I quote, Baptisms are often great, triumphant moments of spiritual victory. But there are more subdued types of victory and recently we got to witness one. There's a woman in our church who has undoubtedly embraced Christ as her Saviour and Lord, and yet for reasons that are beyond us, has for a while been in a profound spiritual desert. She doesn't feel close to God, and she doesn't feel a desire to read the Bible. Her prayers seem to bounce right back to her, and in many ways she feels abandoned by God. And yet she knows and chooses to believe that that is not true of her Father in heaven, that He hears her prayers and would never leave her. And so she wanted to walk in obedience even in the desert and obey Jesus' call to be baptized. Her testimony was one of the most powerful moments we have experienced since our church plan began. Because it is one thing to obey God, when you're feeling spiritually invigorated, but it's another thing altogether to do so when you don't feel close to Him at all. It is not inauthentic to do the right thing even when your heart is not totally in it, as some people in our culture would say. It's rather a beautiful expression of faith and we praise God for her. End quote. In our wilderness, let us, like David and this woman, find our refuge in God, obey Him, and continue to do what's right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.